a lot of coaches at high performance um, are actually not testing. In fact, I had a had a PhD student, Russ Rayner, who uh, did his agility PhD in Australian rules football, and he surveyed all the high performance managers and asked them about their uh, beliefs and practices in in agility testing, uh, amongst other things. And pretty much universally, they didn't do a particular test. Um, so a lot of them relied on subjective evaluation. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. In this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast, I'm delighted to bring back a previous guest in Warren Young. So Warren is an absolute pioneer in the research of agility training and agility testing, and it was an honour to get him back on the podcast. So an adjunct professor at Federation University Australia, and in this episode we have a little dive into, much like we've done before over the last couple of months, we dive into agility training and agility testing, and how that differs to change direction testing and change direction ability, and everything in between. So it's a really, really interesting episode. If you're working with Athletes who work in a sport of multidirectional nature, so football, uh, rugby, uh, ice hockey, basketball, whatever it may be, there is so much information in here to take away and maybe have a little rethink about how you think about agility training and change direction ability and them interchangeable terms as well. So a superb episode, as always, coming up with Warren. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. So without further ado, over to the episode with Warren. Warren Young, welcome back to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming That's on. Great. I know it's the last thing, potentially, well, the last thing I do before Christmas. I know the last thing that you're doing before Christmas probably happened last week, so you, you're fitting me into the uh, the Christmas schedule, so I really do appreciate that. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, Warren, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a bio? Sure. Well, it goes back a long way, Rob, <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll try and keep it. Keep it brief. Um, so I started off um, doing an exercise sports science degree, like a lot of people, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and I even knew then that I wanted to coach. Um, so I went on and did a master's in Canada, and that was in the biomechanics of uh, jumping takeoff techniques. 
Um, and during that time, I was able to do some coaching with the university track team in jumps, which I absolutely loved. And that just uh, reinforced well, how much I loved applying um, you know, the biomechanical principles to, to coaching. And anyway, when I came back to Melbourne, um, I was determined to get a job in track and field, managed to get an interview um, at the Australian Institute of Sport for a jumps coach, but just missed out on it. Um, so a few months later, got a six-month contract at the University of Ballarat. So this is in the mid-80s now um, in sports science. And that turned into a full-time job, um, which was ongoing. And I ended up staying there for over 30 years. Okay. Uh, but in that time, I had a really valuable three-year stint at the AIS. So I took up a job um, as a sports scientist in strength training and testing. And that was the first time that they offered such a job. So it was great opportunity to develop new test protocols because the state of the art then was pretty ordinary for testing athletes. Um, and while I was there for three years, I managed to collect data for a PhD. So the PhD was in um, strength and power assessment. Um, and then for various reasons, came back to Ballarat. Um, and in 2017, so I've just cut through a lot of years here, um, I started up a, uh, a new master's in strength and conditioning, which we spoke about earlier together, um, and kind of got a bit burnt out from it, to be honest, um, and then sort of tr transitioned to retirement. And so now I'm actually retired from full-time uh, work, um, but just as an adjunct associate professor at Federation University um, so, you know, writing a few articles, collaborating with people like Scott Talpy, uh, who you know, and um, just finishing off with a, a PhD student as well. Are we actually talking? pretty much it. Yeah. So what does adjunct actually mean? <laughs> well, <laughs> literally, it means uh, sort of supplementary, like unessential. <laughs> uh, but, but really, it's just a voluntary role for... Um, for people that you know, usually have, have retired. Um, and that way you, you keep engaged, I suppose, with people. You can collaborate and do, I guess, do the things that you want to do rather than all the crap that you, you hate about the job. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so well, so I'm interested, and this is probably a good another personal line, but they've the been burnt out from the Masters. Talk to us a little bit about that. What, 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 what led to that? Uh, I'm only, I I'm only was... asking Warren because it's such a, it's such a, I suppose, on-trend topic to talk, which is great to talk about this kind of thing now. Probably more in the practitioner side of things, but 100% applies to the academic side of things as well. Yeah. I think it was just not... A, um, the university is it's a great university, but doesn't have the wealth of some of the bigger ones. So didn't have the resources to support in terms of other staff and um, the workload just just got just got on top of me, um, and because everything was so new, I mean the process of getting the masters approved was you know so bureaucratic. It's a uh, thing I didn't like about the job. Um, so going through all those hurdles, yeah, it just it just sort of became a bit overwhelming. So I just decided to to, to back off. Um, and Scott Talpy is is taken over that role, so it's it's in good hands. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for that. Um, so you've become very very much well known for your work in the agility space, and it's something that obviously comes up in the podcast with various different practitioners, from researchers to to um, uh, applied applied coaches. So with that in mind, I'd love to get a little bit of a history. Because, as you mentioned, 30 years um, at, at Ballarat, or at uh, Federation as it is now. Would you be able to give us that little bit of a history on your involvement with agility? Um, and the, Because every time someone discusses agility, that framework, I can't remember what it was, like 2014 maybe? The fr uh, you mean the model? Yes, the, the model. model. Yes. I think that, that actually came out in 2002. Oh, wow, okay. 
Right, okay. Yeah. So it's probably been adjusted uh, and I'm thinking of 2014. Okay, yeah. Yeah, 2000, you're close. 2015, it was, it was adjusted. And I think that's an important change which we probably should talk about. Um, but, um, yeah, I just found after doing a lot of research in that sort of strength and power area that, um, yeah, kind of had enough of that um, and wanted to do something new. And there was a – there just seemed a huge gap and a lack of – work in in the agility space so i just made the decision to 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 dive into that and it yeah probably started around that time so that model um which showed originally that agility was um considered as either um change of direction speed which was meant to represent the movement and then a cognitive component which is the decision making and then there's a whole lot of other factors under that that uh, that ultimately influence agility performance as well. So, yeah, that's probably where it started. So as a field, from a very generalised perspective, what do you think's changed in our thinking on this topic since then? Well, the first, the most obvious thing, I think, is the, the language um, with change of direction ability being commonly, widely used now when people are talking about a pre-planned movement that doesn't involve a cognitive component or a decision uh, to a to a stimulus. Um, so yeah, keeping the change of direction ability kind of separate from agility is probably the the big the big thing. Okay, so that's something that's come about since you've done that work in two thousand two. So what you say? Yeah, I think I think that has. Um, sort of fostered that thinking a bit okay yeah. is that is that a, and and yeah go on. now i'm gonna say is that something that's a positive thing for this whole rounded area of agility or is that causing a few problems yeah that's it's a good question because i think what it has done is it has created that separation of um factors uh, or components um and people see the change of direction ability as a, a a key component of agility from that model and then they say well if it underpins agility that's the thing i'm going to focus on and then they ignore the other component completely um, so that that can can be an issue so is that is that fostered from academics or is that is the work being done and then misrepresented and Miss, not really mis- misrepresented, but misunderstood in the field, and there's that disconnect between the two, or is the problem right at the start? I think it probably starts with academics that are publishing stuff, and then they they'll they'll say, well, change of direction ability is a component of agility, so that's what I'm going to go into, and then they'll go just focus totally on that. Okay, so so academics need to do a better job of of including the whole model versus just sticking to one side and then inferring that it helps the model? Yeah, I think so. So uh, it's a good opportunity to jump to the revised model, yeah. so the 2015 one. So I'd, I prefer not to call it change of direction ability now um, in the model. And the, the three key components are uh, the physical, the technical or technique, and the cognitive, which includes the perception and decision-making. Um, so I think when people talk about change of direction, um, often they are actually referring to technique. Okay. So people are focusing on the on the technique side. So does the physical and the cognitive get missed? And again, is that an issue for the practitioner or does that actually start from the academic side? Look, I'm not sure where where it starts and uh, how that has happened, but I think it's it's partly because um, it's much easier for people scientifically minded to break things down and to um, in a, a laboratory setting where everything's controlled to um, to be able to test change of direction ability. Uh, it's so much harder to test agility with that decision making element in it. Um, so I think for convenience, perhaps, um, 
that's one of the reasons why people have um, just focused on changing direction. So do you think in academia there is there is work being done in them harder aspects to try to quantify when it comes to change direction ability or however you want to term it? Or do you think it's we're down this technical road because of the constraints that we have in laboratories and convenience, like you say? Yeah, I think I think um, change of direction ability is easy to, to assess and it's usually it's usually just the time taken to go around a pre planned uh, course, as you know, people would know with five oh five, the Pro Agility, the Illinois test, there's so many examples. Um, but uh, certainly I've been involved in trying to develop agility tests that have that decision-making component and, and we, we could spend hours going through all that so I don't know how much you want to go into that. Yeah, so I'd be really interested to know from that from that work, to in, including that cognitive side of things into agility tests, what has translated from your experience and speaking to people, what has translated best into an applied world that's been... Yeah, the integration of that of a specific test into coaches' world day to day or week to week on the testing front. Yeah, well, as you said um, before we started, Rob, just when we were chatting, um, a lot of coaches at high performance um, are actually not testing. In fact, I had a had a PhD student, Russ Rayner, who uh, did his agility PhD in Australian rules football. And he surveyed all the high performance managers and asked them about their uh, beliefs and practices in, in agility testing, uh, amongst other things. And pretty much universally, they didn't do a particular test. Um, so a lot of them relied on subjective evaluation. So what? Just um, So the tests, oh, sorry, I was going to say the tests that have been designed for holistic agility with decision making that for example I've been involved in have been done with a research question in mind they haven't really been designed specifically for practitioners to use in the field which um, makes them yeah pretty inconvenient and also time consuming you know labor intensive equipment intensive and and I think that's one of the reasons that that uh, that practitioners um, haven't done those sort of tests. Okay. So do you think that is the next frontier for this area, to be able to have a, a test that can be integrated into the high-performance setting? Is that doable? Uh, yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's a huge ask because agility by its nature is so um, open and variable and... Um, as a result, it's not something you can just easily measure in a lab like you can with other qualities. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be an ongoing challenge, I think, uh, to do that. But, yeah, there's been a, f- a few attempts to do it. Um, but I think the starting point has to be to use subjective evaluation and, and try to understand how how athletes move um, before worrying about investing all that time and energy in, into testing. So when did Russ do that questionnaire as part of the PhD? Uh, a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. So if we'd have gone back 10 years, maybe 15 years, would that have changed and would more of more coaches have been doing change direction or agility tests and have since moved away? Uh, probably. So <clears throat> in Australian rules football, which I have most sort of experience in, the, the the AFL have a, a test they use for talent ID um, called the planned AFL agility test, uh, which is um, well, we could <laughs> talk forever about Not that. Not happy about that. But, uh, <laughs> um, it's pretty random. It's it's just um, weaving around five poles, and it's the quickest time. But they do it um, in a combine situation every year, and they re- they use that amongst a whole lot of other things to to recruit athletes into professional teams so um but i've i think even and that's been going for for decades but i i think that um a, a not a lot of faith has been placed in that test for from actual clubs and and coaches i think uh, you know they look at it with some interest just to get a crude 
um, idea of how an athlete moves, but yeah, they don't hang too much importance on it. Okay. So when people say subjective evaluation, is that just watching video and evaluating in the mind of the coach to say, okay, I've saw like almost um, unstructured subjective evaluation. Are we talking about structured subjective evaluations? Yeah, I, I am not aware of um, extensive checklists or anything like that that people can use for a structured evaluation. Um, you know, there are known factors that contribute to good technique and um, injury risky technique that people can probably use. But I don't think anyone's really sat down and presented that um, as something that coaches can use, probably something that does need to be done. So when it comes to, I suppose, ch uh, testing change direction ability as a whole, the testing options that we've got, because we all went through them when we did our undergrad uh, sports science degrees, what is the innate problems with those kind of tests? And, and are they the reasons why people seem to have moved away from... Because it's a common theme in guests that come on the podcast of moving away from those type of tests. Well, in my opinion, I don't think they are relevant to agility performance in sports like invasion sports because they are just how fast you can move in a pre-planned um, pattern and they don't even represent the technical demands of the sport very well and they certainly totally ignore the cognitive component. So I think they uh, often lack uh, relevance at all to agility as it is needed on field. So perhaps we should distinguish between change of direction ability and agility. Can we do that? Of course. Go. Yeah. So uh, a classic example of a change of direction um, sport or, or a component of the sport would be running between wickets in cricket. So the, the batsman um, runs down the end, targets the, the line that they have to cross with their foot or their bat, and then they do a 180-degree turn and run back the other way. And the speed that they can change direction will influence how many runs they can get. So that is uh, pre-planned. The, um, the player knows how fast they're going to be approaching. They know what technique they can use. Um, and there's no reaction to any kind of stimulus. Um, so um, change of direction tests for change of direction sports are totally valuable. Um, and the 505 test, in fact, was originally developed with running between wickets in cricket in mind, and I think it's quite good for that. Um, but in invasion sports, agility is very different um, because of the, the, the need to react to a, a stimulus. So I should go into that? Yes, absolutely. I'm just writing notes. Okay, Keep so, going. <laughs> yeah. So the, I guess the, the thing that's um, influenced me the most in my thinking in recent years is just trying to um, explain uh, what agility is in the context of a sport, such as an invasion sport like all codes of football. Um, and we talk about a general definition of reacting to a stimulus, movement, and react uh, that's one way to think of it, but that's very simplistic. Um, in, in a sport such as, let's say, take soccer, um, there are many scenarios where there might be a stimulus the player has to react to and change direction. So it might be a missed kick or something like that. But in my opinion, um, the most impactful situations in the sport where an athlete needs good agility is in a contest when the ball's in dispute. So you can imagine the player dribbling the ball and defenders are coming towards the player and the player uh, is under pressure so they need to do something, so they, they might stop hard, decelerate, or they might do some sort of lateral movement in reaction to the defender's actions. They might even uh, throw in a deceptive action like a, a, a fake pass or a, a fake step. Um, and the purpose for that is to give themselves time and space in order to either pass the ball to a teammate or to progress further down the field. Um, 
And for the defender, it's kind of the opposite of that. The defender is trying to dispossess the attacker um, and get close enough in, in proximity so it's to reduce that space and time to ultimately get a, achieve a turnover. Um, and if the sport allows tackling, it might might involve a tackle. But it's that movement to, 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 to do that. And both the attacker and defender are reacting to each other instantly. You know, as they get closer, the, the attacker might uh, move one way, reads the, the way the defender's responding to that, and then might you know, go the other way, or they might continue in the same direction. But there's, there's a constant evaluation um, to, to make that final change of direction or, or, or speed that's required. So I think that's really important that we, that we understand it that way. And so kind of makes sense that, you know, these change of direction tests that are traditionally being done really lack a lot of relevance to that. With that description, it probably doesn't highlight it as much, but in my mind, as you describe it, I'm going the, that first, maybe not in the contest example, but certainly in a, I suppose a gameplay example, the attacker is initiating that first movement, potentially, but the defender is reacting initially to that first movement of the attacker. So that would suggest that we need to train defenders differently to attackers is that right exactly okay it's a good uh, uh point for me to to say that yeah we've done some research in that and uh like so we have done a test that's tried to assess both attacking and defending agility separately and that's also been sort of uh duplicated in rug this is for australian football but that was duplicated in rugby union and showed that um, the correlation between attacking and defending agility is not that high. Uh, so what that means is being good at one doesn't doesn't guarantee being good at the other. So yeah, they are somewhat different skills, and that's partly because of movements uh, uh, can be different. Um, so for example, a defender when they approach an attacker and they're kind of waiting for what they need to do, they will maybe shuffle. Um, and and to get into a position to block and then and then maybe cut, whereas an attacker might do a straight out hard sidestep. You know, so the techniques can be different, um, and also the the view, so the the perception of of how and the decision making is different as well, uh, because the attacker, like in a rugby player, that might be carrying the ball, uh, so you're looking at different cues um, to what the Defenders, or the defender and the attacker, are looking at different, you know, uh, uh, parts of the body. Um, so yeah, all those sorts of things influence um, the the difference between the two. So yeah, ideally they should be trained and tested with that in mind. So that's from a <clears throat> excuse me, that's from a testing point of view. From a training point of view, what kind of things would you put in place to tweak the attacker versus the defender, or the defender versus the attacker, and the differences between the two? I know yeah. you've mentioned a few there. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the test that I was referring to that um, produced that research and came up with those conclusions was a 1v1 um, contest. And that test could easily be turned into a training session. So I'll try and explain it. It's a, If you can imagine a, a square little pitch, maybe 12 by 12 metres, something like that, and the attacker, depending on the sport, has possession of a ball and has to try to evade the defender and get to the the end line to to win and score. Um, and the defender's job is to try to shadow and prevent them from doing that. Um, so uh, I won't go into the test unless you want me to, but from a training perspective, um, what you would do is you would have uh, players start in different positions in that square um, so, you know, some to the side, some purely front on, some start close together, some further apart. So what you're trying to do is vary the speed at which they come together and also the view that they have of each other. So, you're, yeah, you're really trying to represent different agility scenarios in games. Um, and if you want, you can make it a uh, have tackling involved, but if not, it could be just a tag um, 
that the defender tries to do. So how would that work in the test? Explain the test to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the tricky thing in the test is, so you'd have, let's say you've got, you're assessing attacking first. So the defender has to be someone who is the tester. And it's, it's hard to, to find the right person to do that. But it has to be someone of a similar standard. So it could be a, another player in the team, but um, it could be an assistant coach or someone like that. But, um, but that tester has to be able to act as a defender to all the players on the team in order to be able to compare them. Um, so that's why it's, it's, you know, it's, it's quite hard to do logistically. Um, but then, so let's, let's say you can do that, then um, the roles are reversed and the, um, the player being assessed becomes the defender and they're trying to um, tag or shadow the tester who's who has the role of the attacker. So yeah, so the players assume the role of attacker and defender in different trials. And you do a number of trials and you the the um, scoring, it's hard to explain, but um, it's based on the proximity of the players to each other. So the attacker's trying to get around the defender without being touched. Okay, so we're assuming their agility um, is good if they can totally evade without being touched. Um, so if they get past without being touched, they get the maximum points, which is, in our example, it was three. Um, if the defender reaches out, and this is for Australian rules where you can grab them, touches them with one outstretched hand, that means the defender's got closer, so they only get two points. If the defender gets two hands on them, it's one point, and if the defender misses, it's, um, it's, it's zero. Uh, and then the scoring is reversed um, for the other the other way. So the defender gets maximum points for a two-handed tag and zero for, for being evaded completely. So if you do 10 trials, you get a total maximum score of 30. And, and that's what that's what we've done as a test. And it's been, you know, it's reliable. Um, and it's, as I said, it's been adapted for, for rugby. So I think, you know, it's promising if you can get around the logistics of it. Yeah. So for something like soccer, so something like football, how would that differ? Because obviously we're not touching, but we're tackling with legs and whatnot. How would that work? Would that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I've talked to um, uh, an academy, a soccer academy S&C coach who was trying to do that, and I haven't really uh, heard how he how we went with it but and also I've talked to Rich Clark yes um, about about the same thing and and he he agreed that um, yeah more work needs to be done to make that work for soccer so I'm not sure yeah okay nice so would that involve any subjective evaluation or not in that win that test well with that test what you, you can score pretty reliably live so if someone's uh, watching it uh, in real time they can pretty accurately pick the two-handed tag, one-handed tag, and so on. But it would be it's more effective to use video footage to confirm their scoring. So once you've captured that video footage, you can then look at it after, and you can do the subjective um, evaluation as well. So that's what I'd recommend. Nice. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Warren. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around open drills versus closed drills and really dive into the training of these qualities. So a really cool, interesting and so, so informative part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. 
iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform Smarterbase is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one-stop shop solution for the holistic management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And now back to the episode with Warren. Okay, so when it comes to the coaching side of things, so strategies to enhance agility, I know we've, we've kind of touched on a few, and it was something that I picked out, um, a, a little a bit of text that I picked out of the High Performance Training for Sports um, agility chapter. So physical capacity to perform, to uh, transfer of training, to uh, change direction, situational change direction, and then worst case, Sorry, worst case scenario. So I'm just interested how we would take the work that's been done in the research and translate that into what happens on a day-to-day basis in a soccer club, AFL club, rugby club. So I'm just interested to get your thoughts on how we go about doing that from potential uh, drill progression, where we'd start, whether it be a <laughs> when it be, I'm laughing because what a massive question that is. <laughs> Will it be close close drills, uh, open drills? Yeah. yeah, we've got to the hour, Warren, and I said I'd keep you to the hour, <laughs> so we haven't got too wow. long. But it'd be good to, to okay. get a, a bit yeah. of an overview from you if possible. Yeah, okay. So the starting point is that even though an S&C coach um, is usually responsible for the physical component and focuses on that, I believe that yeah, they can be more impactful and effective on the athlete's performance if they also address the, the technical and the cognitive. So that's, I think, an important starting point. So does what, what activities can we do to address all of those across a period of time, I think, is, is what we, we start with. So with the technical, I think this is where it's a bit controversial because um, that's where people will just do um, pre-planned change of direction type activities. Now, I, I definitely do see a role for it. Okay, so people have probably heard me say that it's not so relevant, but um, by doing um, multiple reps of, say, side stepping, um, where the coach can control the loading on the on the leg, the push off leg, um, by controlling the speed of approach and the angle of cut, because those things affect the loading. Um, I, I fully get that you can improve the physical capacity to do that better. Um, so that's one, one strategy right there that, that I would accept. Um, and I also think there's probably a place for some of that isolated um, technical work um, to work on a safe sidestepping technique. So what I mean by that is... Um, ACL injuries um, occur in invasion sports uh, a fair bit, and it's the in non non contact injuries. It's often the the sidestep or the cut where where that occurs. Um, so Tom Dos Santos has done a lot of great work in that area, and there's a whole list of technical points that he's shown you can improve 
um, with the right cues. So I think there's, there is a place for that, uh, for sure. Um, I see a place for deceleration work because sometimes agility itself, even in a game, is not even lateral change of direction. He's just, just stopping hard to create that space from a, an opponent. Um, so deceleration work in, in works on the, on the physical capacity. And then, of course, there's a whole range of things that can be done in the gym, in the weight room, and plyometrics is a, is a key, I think. So when you look at sidestepping and you look at the demands of it in terms of the stretch shortening cycle, the ground contact time, and all of that, the stiffness that the leg requires, um, it just lends itself to plyometric training. Um, so there's a whole range of exercises that you know you can progress from bilateral, vertical, like drop jumping, um, to 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 more specific um, jumps with uh, you know lateral components off a, off a single leg. Um, but for the technical, I think that and something I've talked about before, um, although I'm no skill acquisition expert, the concept of perception action coupling, I think, comes into play. So it's believed that if you take the, the, the perception as the decision-making and the stimulus, the action is the movement. If you separate the movement and just do isolated change of direction drills, then you take the movement out of context of the game because perception and action influence each other. Um, and we know that if you um, look at someone's technique when they're doing a pre-planned cut and then you introduce a stimulus, whether it's a generic stimulus or a, an opponent, their technique will change uh, significantly. So it doesn't make sense to, um, to keep that separate for training the technical aspect. So I totally get that it's okay for the physical capacities but when it comes to getting maximum transfer from technique work, I think it's important to try to keep that um, perception action intact and to include the decision-making element, usually from um, an opponent because that's sport-specific. So how do you do that? Well, it comes back to that um, 1v1 example. Yeah. So you can start off with... Um, jogging speeds as players approach each other. You can have rules and constraints around that to prevent it from being too complex and intense. Um, and then you can and you can take away uh, deceptive actions um, and then you, you, could in, you could gradually introduce those, those elements uh, to, to increase the complexity and the, um, and the intensity. So I guess what I'm saying is I think there's a role for that kind of activity across a whole range of performance levels. I suppose the million dollar question is at what point are we, and I know there's not one cutoff point, it's all kind of on a, a spectrum of, of intermingling the two, but transferring from the more pre-planned work to the more chaotic work. And you've given an example there of, of actually constraining the chaotic work to make that transition a little bit, a little bit smoother but what so i'm just thinking of kind of novice youth athletes would you focus more down the pre-planned end and start slowly introducing the more chaotic or would that be introduced right from the start and just putting in constraints like you say yeah that's a, that's a great question um and I, I you know my thinking on that's just evolving all the time too so um i mean yeah i, I think the constraints work for youth athletes you know so there's no danger in them doing it uh from from the beginning but i think the best uh, strategy really is to look at the athlete as an individual so regardless of their age um you know there are some youth athletes that are incredibly strong and great movers you know um so why spend a, a ridiculous amount of time on on basics and pre-planned actions, just like you don't spend all your time on basic strength development if they've already got a really good strength base. You, you move on from that. So if it can be individualized, that's the ideal. Do you think we stick down the pre-planned end too long because it's, it's safe in our mind because it's structured and it's 
we can put a we can put a time on it or we can we can um just keep it confined to a, a specific area it doesn't look messy looks cool on instagram or whatever it might be do you think we stick down there too long before introducing the more chaotic stuff yeah i do i do and i and for the reasons that you mentioned exactly it's so much easier to plan and control and that's what snc coaches want to do but you as you also said there's that point where you you've got to get the balance right and that's that's a that's a hard one. Yeah, I spoke to John Goodwin. Don't know if you've come across John, who works in the UK. Sprint guy was at Fulham Academy, but he's moving to back to Saudi Arabia, I believe. He was at St Mary's for a long time, and he coined the term. I think he coined the term uh, co- coaching ugly, and being happy in that chaotic environment when it's just on the edge of being ugly, and being happy being there versus. Um, uh, re- regressing it so much that it looks perfect, looks great on YouTube, looks great on Instagram, whatever it may be, but you're not actually progressing the players because we're not at that edge of ugly yet. We're not at the edge of putting these athletes in a situation where they're actually learning and developing. Would that be something that you, I suppose, backs up what we just said about being the pre-planned too long? Yeah, exactly. Like Philosophically, uh, I would agree with that. Completely, and particularly in sports like um, soccer, where it is chaotic, and you've you've got to you've got to be able to prepare for that demand. Yeah. So, so when it comes to the programming and in, including whether it be change of extra ability or agility into our week, into our month, into our year, where does it fit in? Is it something that can be put into especially the pre-planned stuff is that something that is in the warm-up and then it transitions into a small-sided game we can introduce those 1v1s is it right at the start of the week when it's furthest away from the game what would you recommend there just for people trying to trying to plan this uh in a week or a month yeah uh, look, it's hard to answer the when in the week because it depends on what time of the season we're talking about but um, but um, yeah, what, what, I forgot the first thing you yeah, said. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, just, just um, I suppose, where in the is it something we can we can include in the warm up? I'm guessing these yes, one these one v one situations could be quite a nice place to start if we're going into larger um, small sided games. So maybe that one v one would fit really well so in the warm up, the- especially with youth players. Yeah, and well, especially the and the pre-planned stuff. Yeah, definitely can can be as well. You know, the the and the deceleration drills. Some of that can be done there. So yeah, that that, that makes that makes sense. And then we haven't talked about small-sided games because yeah. they're they're good for agility as well because you know they don't cater for the physical development so much, but the um, the technical and the cognitive they are very good. Um, and so when you say where do they fit into the program, well, because small-sided games by their nature, you know, also have a tactical component and they involve other skills besides just evasion and agility, you know, there's passing and whatever, then by talking with skills coaches, the other coaches, then you come up with some sort of integrated approach that targets, like, so you might do a small-sided game with a focus on kicking or something, or handballing in Australian football, um, but then switch the focus, you know, within the game by changing some constraints to to agility. So yeah, I think it can be integrated that way. And obviously, we're going to be developing and focus on different things, whether it's a, a smaller, small sided game, or a larger, small sided game, tighter areas, bigger areas, more players, less players, all them things can be manipulated to get the outcome that we want. Exactly, yeah. So if you have um, high density, so uh, a lot of players in a small space, then you're going to get more evasive action um, so long as players don't just keep passing and and don't attempt to evade. And so that's something that you can manipulate with the rules to ensure that they don't just pass. So you encourage evasion. but in doing that in a small space, then movement speeds won't be very high. So you won't 
you know, it's a safer activity. It won't, uh, yeah, it may not pr produce the overload you want, but it might uh, physically, but it might have the the cognitive because there might be more um, agility scenarios per minute type of, in that situation. But if it's a bigger pitch, less dense, then you're going to have faster movement speeds. And yeah, it's obviously going to change the training stimulus. So yeah, coaches should try to manipulate those constraints to achieve what they want. One last thing before I let you go, Warren, I can't let it go because <clears throat> you've mentioned it a few times. Deceleration and specifically deceleration training. Is there anything that you would recommend when we're isolating that portion of agility that coaches could take away and work on? Uh, not really. I think there's, you know, there's te technical points and cues that you can use. Um, you know, I know Damien Harper's done some great work in that area um, and, and Tom Dos Santos as well. And, you know, the talk about slamming on the brakes early rather than trying to stop on the one last step, which will load the knee up and be risky and so on. So, yeah, that, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, lowering the body, uh, shortening the steps, um, starting to lean back. Yeah, there's various cues, I suppose, that, that you can use. But I, I haven't done a lot of that sort of myself. Okay, cool. So for anyone out there who wants to dive into some of the work that you've done, whether it be current or, or, or previous, where's the best place for people to go? And second question Where's the best place for people to contact you on social media? Mm. So I'm not very good at keeping uh, up with things like ResearchGate, and so I can't I can't think of a a, a particular forum where people can just tap into the like articles and so on. But you know, use Google Scholar and you'll probably find them. Um, but in terms of discussion with me, um, I don't do too much on on social media, I'd rather talk to people with extended conversations. I mean, I've got the time to do that now and I'm really, really happy to to have email conversations with people. That's great. So feel free to share that email address. Yeah, perfect. Love that. Take it off social media and have some real conversation. How wild is that concept? <laughs> Old school, but good. Yes, absolutely. Well, Warren, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate you uh, giving me time during your Christmas break. And uh, look forward to catching up soon. No worries. Thanks, Rob. And have a good Christmas yourself. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 384 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Warren for giving up his time. I know you mentioned that he's got a little bit more time on his hands these days, but I know what it's like to uh, to pin down time in the diary, also with the time zones as well. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Play, I Measure You and Fusion Sport for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I'm eternally grateful for all their support. Obviously, thank you to you guys for tuning in. I look forward to speaking to you next week. 